is Sid Rap on BFBS with Kate Chabot. Syria, if this is the end of the war, who runs the peace? There's a lot of talking about talking in Afghanistan. Could Russian hackers fix the next general election? And the team that keeps radio clean. What we can't afford to do is allow any virus or any malware or any type of action to occur on that platform that we are not in control of. This week, Russia and Turkey reached an agreement over the last major rebel-held area in Syria, Idlib province. Speaking after talks, President Putin says he and his Turkish counterpart, President Erdogan, will create a demilitarized buffer zone in the province. Russia's defence minister says this means there'll be no new military operations against Idlib. Well, I'm joined by Dr Karen von Hippel, Director General of the Royal United Services Institute, as well as Christopher Lee, our defence analyst. Hello to both of you. Karen, what does this mean for the conflict as a whole? Is this the Syrian war over? Mm, Too early to say. Uh, At the moment, the devil is really in the details. So Russia and Turkey have agreed to stop uh, the the military conflict. But uh, I think, you know, the agreement is not... uh, Part of the agreement says that later on, all the militias, militia groups will turn in their weapons, etc. And I think many of those opposition groups will not agree to that, nor will they agree to completely cede the province. So I think everyone's happy for, uh, you know, for the fighting to stop for now. Mm. But I'm not sure that the next phase will be implementable. So do you think there's a danger then that this will simply revive the revolutionary spirit? I mean, you know, it's been petering for a long time. The war is coming to an end. Idlib is the last holdout, really. And it's where many of the militias uh, fled from other parts of Syria when, when, when local level peace agreements were made in those other parts. And so in a sense, there are a lot of jihadist groups there, but there are also a lot of civilians or more than 3 million civilians in that province. And so the real concern is that the Russians and the Iranians and the Syrian regime will just start to barrage the area, uh, killing a number of civilians and driving even more Syrians into neighboring countries. And so, yes, any halt in that uh, conflict is welcome, but it's not clear how long this will mm. last. And what do you make of, of the West in all of this? We were talking last week about this, and there was very much a comment made that this is a, a failure of Western leadership in the way that they have really withdrawn from shaping any outcome in Syria. Yes, absolutely, that's the case. I think uh, towards the end of the Obama regime, uh, the US, while not successful, was working very closely with the UK and a number of other countries and really trying to lead on the peace process. And really ever since President Trump took over, he's just basically got out of the way to the point where Iran and Russia are now leading on that peace process. And of course, Turkey occasionally plays uh, uh, a role, partnership role with them. But I, I, you know, I put Turkey in a slightly different category than Iran and Russia. And I don't think what Iran and Russia want for Syria will necessarily cohere with what many, many Syrians want. So Christopher Lee, when it's over, who actually rules Syria so that it doesn't all start again? Well, it's not so much it doesn't start again, it's just that simple rule. Listen, it just imagine, put it in some sort of context. For example, let's not forget the Saudis. Uh, that what happens to their war with, their proxy war with Iran? What happens to all the people we've signed up with, like the rebels, the fact that we've got to accept that we picked the wrong side, etc.? The interest of what goes on in, in Syria goes much further out 
them whether we, we like the way Trump handled it or whether we like the way that Putin handled it. If you then say, right, just supposing, just supposing they get the, the whole thing settled down, uh, surely the president of Syria said this began as a bit of a civil war. Uh, I got elected as leader of uh, Syria, whatever we may think about the election or how it was done. Uh, so therefore, I'm going to be uh, I'm going to be ruling. I'm going to be president of Syria. Somebody has got to say, well, who's going to keep you president of Syria? Because we could easily get back to where we were before, in spite of what you think about the fact that you can you could run Syria. Dr. Karen von Hippel, do you see that as a possibility? I mean, the, the, what I worry about is uh, the regime itself is not strong enough to control the whole country. Don't forget that Russia came in in September 2015 precisely because the regime looked like it was about to be toppled by various militia groups. And so it's only with Russian and Iranian help that they have been able to make you know, progress on the ground. And really, it's a Pyrrhic victory because they won't be able to fully control it without foreign troops such as Russians and Iranians on the ground. So what I worry about is in a number of parts of the country where the regime can't control those areas that another power vacuum will be created and yet again various jihadi and other groups will fill that vacuum. So the long term it's just it's you know it's hard to be optimistic about Syria. The and example if- the example isn't it Karen is in, in a way, is is sort of Iraq, um, Iraq with perhaps even a stronger uh, version of government. You can take Syria, and in theory, you could you could split it into the, into three federations, and you could say to uh, President Assad, "Well, you look after the western side, which takes you into the Mediterranean, where your mates, the the Russians are, etc." But what happens to Syria? As as a as a country as it is now, with all the animosities, with the memories, um, with the opportunities of other people moving in, there's no way in which the present setup is powerful enough that has the organisation, the wiring diagram that you need to run somewhere like Syria. It just doesn't actually happen to it. No, you're right. And in fact, Assad has lost, in my view, he's lost the moral authority to be a leader. Half the population has been displaced and half a million civilians have been killed. And the vast majority of those are really more due to the actions of his regime than ISIL or, or you know, uh, which of course he likes to blame everything on ISIL, but the place splintered because of the way that he was, uh, you know, really responding to a, a largely peaceful civilian resistance movement. And we also think- know that when you, the reason that, for example, the British and other people didn't get directly involved is that they weren't going to put any so-called troops on the ground because that's what they would have had to have done to, to get involved. Um, nobody's going to get involved now. So there well, there are no... troops. There are troops on the ground, but in in certain areas, right? Yeah, in the Kurdish areas. Area. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. So, we, so we accept the situation is a complete yeah. mess. Yeah. Karen von Hippel, what do you think is the best possible outcome for the people? Uh, I just like it breaks my heart. Um, this conflict has been going on for so long, and it, the longer it goes on, the worse it gets for the civilians. I mean, you know, in an ideal world, uh, U.S., U.K., and other uh, like-minded countries would get together and try to reinvigorate the the stalled Geneva process, which, by the way, the regime had signed up to, and the Russians, all P5 countries had signed up to back in 2012, and and you know, you know variations on that theme had been uh, agreed to as well subsequently. Uh, of course, I know that the situation on the ground favors the regime right now, but I also think that you know strong diplomacy 
could try to weigh in and say, look, this Astana process is not about a peace process. It's a, it's about deconfliction zones, de demilitarization zones. Geneva is the only agreement we've all agreed to, and let's make that happen. How likely is that to happen, do you think? Very unlikely. And also the British and other countries are saying, well, any agreement we, we, we get to, then it means Assad must, obviously must have to stand down. Well, he's just won the war, uh, in, according to him. But, you know, what happens to Syria, in a way, is it becomes... I don't say it likely, but it becomes a sort of an adventure playground for the NGOs, for the charity workers. You've got 700,000 people as refugees in where they're trying to sort out one small place at the moment. That is the size of the problem. And so it is first and foremost a refugee problem, and therefore a charity problem. And from that, the peace has got to be guaranteed in so many incidents, which don't appear to be very big to us, but they are, in order that the charity work can actually continue, not just begin. Well, stay with us, because there's a new diplomatic move for peace in Afghanistan. The Russians have pulled some elements of the Taliban for talks in Russia itself. Today, there's very every sign that the Afghan government is willing to take part in those talks. But three big questions. How are the Russians putting this together? Why have the Afghans been unwilling to join formal talks? And who will trust the Taliban leadership. Well, Karen von Hippel, let's start with the Russians. Given their bloody history in Afghanistan from 1979 to 1989, President Putin's opinion that Afghanistan is a place to avoid, how come they're leading on this? It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, it seems like Russia is really trying to insert itself into every major international issue right now. They're doing the same in Libya, in Yemen, of course, in Syria. So in that region, they're really trying to portray themselves as a regional power broker. And the reality is the Americans have kind of withdrawn from that role right now. And so there is a vacuum. Uh, I just don't have any faith that what the Russians will do will lead to anything. Of course, we all wish them the greatest success, but I'm not optimistic. Why are you not optimistic? Because I don't think that they care uh, for a proper outcome in any of these countries, really. I mean, we've seen that in Syria over and over again. We've seen that in the way that they act in a large number of countries, you know, Ukraine, or even in countries in, in, in Western, Eastern Europe, where they've interfered in so many ways. It's almost as if they want to stir up trouble and they want to insert themselves, but they're not very interested in an outcome that would actually be beneficial to the people of those countries. Christopher Lee, why have... Go on, sorry. I'm, I'm just thinking that, that Afghanistan itself, if you say, right, we've got to get peace in Afghanistan. Well, if you've got supposedly, we call them insurgent groups within Afghanistan, you can't guarantee peace because you don't know how... Because you've got no control. You don't know how they're going to react. But the other thing we mustn't forget, um, in theory, you've got to have guarantors for any sort of peace deal in any region. And in Afghanistan, it's far more difficult than most. And let's consider who's got to be taking part. India, Pakistan, the Central Asian republics have got to take part. And so have the Iranians. And there's an, a, a newer element. China's got an interest in this. You know, this, and then you add on... So again, you're portraying an impossible situation. Well, you're not, it's not an impossible situation, but it's not one that simply you say, oh, well, that's all right. We've got a meeting going on just outside of Moscow. Mm, what, what, why have the Afghans been unwilling to join formal ta talks? Um, because they, because they, they, they argue amongst themselves. And they've got very good, very, very good reason to do it because there's a lot of mistrust within the whole running of, of, Afga of Afghanistan. There are personalities involved at a very senior level. And also they look at the people that are running the different, uh, uh, different parts of Afghanistan at the moment and say, you know, we can't trust these people 
because I know these people, therefore we can't trust them. Mm. And, you know, who would you, you trust, the, the Russians? 1979, December 1979, we all remember it well, they'll say. No, they won't trust the Russians. Karen von Hippel, assuming these talks to go ahead as planned, um, is much to be really achieved by them? Well, it's, uh, it's a good question. Uh, at the moment, the Taliban have control of a large number of provinces and they have uh, they're increasing their behind the scenes control in many provinces. I so don't there's have, not much incentive then. Well, it's inter- uh, yeah, I don't I, I don't have the exact figures with me. The New York Times did a very interesting article the other day comparing what the western governments and the Afghan government was saying and what the reality on the ground was that the journalists were finding and of course they were all exaggerating uh, the influence of the Afghan government and underrepresenting how powerful the Taliban was. So you know, trying to figure out how to uh, strong arm the Taliban into playing a positive role will be really challenging. Mm. Christopher, anyone else involved? I, I, well, there, there's one other element involved. Um, uh, and McCarran was going through the list of people that the Russians are saying, look, we know we can help out here and, you know, we can be guarantors, etc. There will come a point when President Putin's uh, military organization uh, simply cannot handle all these dispositions and all these deployments. And it's not a question of the fact that he hasn't got enough men or hasn't got enough equipment. It is the strain of organization. Um, And when you put, for example, a ship uh, or a battalion into a small area, you've got to have four more battalions standing by to replace them at any one time. You've got to have three ships protecting one ship, etc. And it becomes a big colonial uh, military op- operation and the way that the Russian uh, military is at the moment, I can't handle that for much longer. Karen von Hippel, Christopher, stay with us. With Still to come, can you hear me? The radio school says yes, loud and clear, and flying high at 100. Staying with Russia for the moment, in the latest book, Fear, written by the Washington Post associate editor Bob Woodward, the first year of the Trump administration is dissected in the most unflattering way towards Trump. Woodward looks at the way Russian cyber hackers got into perhaps millions of email address books in America in an attempt to influence the outcome of the 2016 election. Uh, Christopher What's Woodward's take on how it worked exactly? Yeah, this is a, a tiny part uh, of of what is quite a remarkable sort of uh, dissection of, of of that first year. But it's interesting the numbers of people who were involved from the highest levels at the CIA, etc., talking to their Russian counterparts. And this is basic, basically it. Supposing you uh, email somebody, and uh, you say to them, "I think I'm going to vote for Trump." And your person you wrote uh, wrote to as a sort of friend and thought, yeah, it's a present, that's a sensible thing. I think I'll, I'll do that as well. Now, supposing you're a hacker and you go in and you get thousands upon thousands of email addresses. And then supposing you start sending from those email addresses false emails to other people, you can start pushing around what's happening in Wisconsin, what's happening in Illinois, or whatever. That is the theory. So you're building up ahead of steam. You could do it. You could do it. But it was the way they were thinking it through. Uh, and this is before the election, obviously, because I'm after you don't do it after the election, or you may do. Um, it, it presents something here, and that is that British intelligence are already saying to, saying to us publicly, 
while we think we're being hacked by uh, uh, Russian-based, it doesn't mean it's the Russian government, doesn't mean that at all, but Russian-based hackers. Now, so who, crim criminals? Well, not necessarily criminals. They might be doing it on behalf. I mean, they may be part of a thing called Wagner, for example, which has been operating a, a, a new cyber attack wing. Our, uh, Wagner is this, are the people that probably brought down, for example, the airliner over Ukraine. They weren't in the Russian army, but they were working for or something like that. So it is something which is simply possible. And cyber has caught up with not just the imagination. Cyber has caught up with the fact list of what is possible to do with a pretty simple operation so fast that now it's, re now it's real, now it's true. And so people can sit there and they'll say, just supposing they could get into uh, British emails. Yes, that was going to be my next question, Karen von Hippel. What is the likelihood that uh, the next general election in the UK could be influenced in this way? Well, there's several things that the Russians have done. So they, of course, as, as Christopher was saying, they uh, hacked into emails and released that information. They had a huge misinformation campaign with their bot farms spinning out information, and they've done that since the election. They've done that in other countries in Europe, trying to uh, you know, add to cleavages that already exist, pro-Brexit, anti-Brexit, pro-Hillary, anti-Hillary. And then separately, they may have hacked into the election machines themselves in the states. Now, each state does their own election. Uh, they run their own elections, and some are backed by paper ballots, some are not. And, you know, it's not hard to hack into some of those machines because they're very old. I don't know if in this country, if, if everything is done by paper ballot uh, mm -hmm. or not. So I think that's really a risk. And I'm not sure that the U.S. system has, has uh, really become robust enough in these coming up elections in November even to prevent that from happening again. So we're talking about um, the fear of influencing the outcome of elections. And as we know, with, with cybersecurity, you've always got to be thinking two or three steps ahead of what's going to be happening next. Can you imagine, Christopher, what the next development of this capability would be? Yeah, it, it, it can actually, for example, start manipulating, let's call them bank accounts. It can start manipulating the economy but financial uh, movements. And suddenly, uh, it could move oil, uh, oil supplies. You can shut down, you can shut down almost the whole of motorway oil supplies in something like 13, 14 hours, right? You imagine being able to do that aggressively as a hacker. You can imagine the chaos that would actually bring you can actually get into the uh, traffic light system, say, in a, in a big city like Manchester or London. You can get into the emergency services. You can create, therefore, an emergency, which is pretty easy to do. You can do that just by two guys doing it. And suddenly, the ambulance services, the fire services, the police services, the, even the traffic lights are interrupted. Now, this is not, this is not the, the, the novelist. Uh, this is easy to do. And you don't actually have to wait and do it from Russia. You can do part of that from exactly where we're sitting with, with, with the right equipment here. Dr. Karen von Hippel, how good do you think the UK is defending itself against the kind of situation Christopher's describing? I mean, look, everyone's working incredibly hard. There's 
lots of capability in this country, uh, GCHQ, the National Cybersecurity Center, etc. So some of the best in the world, some of the best defenses in the world. Uh, and, but it's always a challenge for a bureaucracy to ha stay ahead, of, you know, very motivated individuals and organizations and criminal networks, etc., who are really doing their darndest to, to interfere, uh, whether for their own personal gain or just to cause trouble or, you know, in terms of a cyber war itself. All right, Dr. Karen von Hippel, we'll leave it there. Thank you for your time today. That was Dr. Karen von Hippel from the Royal United Services Institute. Now, an RAF training facility is celebrating 100 years at the forefront of secure communication and encryption. Number one radio school began live training RAF wireless operators, but now its main focus is combating threats in cyberspace. Our reporter, Sean Grezchek, has been for a look around. It was originally known as the School for Wireless Operators and has moved to various parts of the country during its 100-year history. Starting life in Farnborough and then Hampshire, now it's based at RAF Cosford in the West Midlands. In 2018, it's a very different place compared to its 1918 counterpart. The school is responsible for the training of all cyberspace communications specialists and engineering officers. The officer commanding is Wing Commander Jamie Thompson. He told me just how crucial it is that today's training focuses on the threats faced in cyberspace. So all of our systems are at threat of being uh, exploited or hacked is the uh, term perhaps we'd understand more of. Um, to ensure that that doesn't happen, our technicians are able to protect against that. They're able to identify when something unusual is happening on the platform or indeed on the computer systems associated with that platform. And the network defence is intrinsic to ensuring that that aircraft is at the maximum capability it can always be. What we can't afford to do is allow any virus or any malware or any type of action to occur on that platform that we are not in control of. Now we're going to connect it up to the main router to provide us with phone calls, uh, telephone calls and internet. One of the teams who did their training at the school is showing me how their job works. They're on 60 minutes notice to deploy anywhere in the world and are responsible for setting up secure communications on operations. It's their job to make sure commanders can talk securely, sharing information with those on the ground and back in the UK, whether that's via email, the internet or phone. Senior aircraftsman Al Field is leading the high readiness team and has just assembled one of their satellites for me to take a look at. Without the comms, there is just literally there could be no movement for any any aircraft or any land units. If we don't have the communications, we can't tell the UK what we're doing, how we're going to carry it out, and even within a close proximity, uh, within a couple of miles from the area we're working in they can't communicate with each other, so the comms are very, very vital. Virtual reality and augmented reality are how many of the students learn today. But scroll back in time to the early days of the school and things couldn't have been more different. Sergeant Richard Mabbott specialises in secure communications at the school. And whilst the syllabus has changed dramatically, things like encryption aren't new ideas. There was actually a code, or it's called the Caesar cipher, and that was uh, used extensively by uh, Roman armies to mask their movements around. Now, if you fast forward to uh, pre-World War II and throughout World War II, there's probably the most famous encryption device is the Enigma machine. Nowadays, a computer could uh, probably crack an Enigma code within hours. As the school celebrates its centenary, it's clear just how much defence communication technology has evolved. Over the next 100 years, those trained here will be vital in defending against attacks in cyberspace and beyond.
The UK has committed to buying at least 100 more F-35B fighter jets. Britain already has 16 of the planes. Defence Procurement Minister Stuart Andrew formally opened the Rolls-Royce liftworks site this week. It's at Filton, near Bristol, and will make the blades and other key components for the vertical takeoff and landing system. The minister spoke to our reporter James Hurst. I think what I've seen here is how this company has really made sure that it is, it has adapted and it has prepared itself to become a company that will provide these critical elements of the F-35B programme. The other thing that I've seen is how they are preparing the next generation with the skills that we will need as this project continues. This is a company that really has worked with the workforce to ensure that it delivers on time and on budget with the issues that we need. This, though, in part is a bit of a leap of faith by Rolls-Royce because they still don't know how many F-35Bs Britain is going to buy. Well, uh, we have committed, and this is why they are, there's going to be over 500 of these uh, uh, fans that are going to be built here as part of the wider F-35B programme. This is why this programme is so important, because it's not just about the UK, it's partnerships with other countries around the globe, and that will make sure that it's a success here. Originally, we were told there would be 138 for the Royal Navy and Royal Air Force. Now that's totally up in the air. Maybe some of them will be F-35Bs, maybe they'll be A's. When is defence, both the industry and the servicemen and women, going to get some certainty on this? We are still committed to the 138 F-35s. Let me make that absolutely clear. It's the delivery and the timing of each of them as as we bring them in. We've already just taken delivery of our 16th F-35. So this is a programme that we are committed to, and so are our allies around the globe. Is the Treasury committed to actually funding it, then? Well, I mean, obviously we're going through the MDP at the moment. This is a massive exercise, but in terms of the scale of this project, we will absolutely make sure, because each time we uh, order a new batch, we obviously get more value for money, and that is important for the taxpayer, as well as making sure that we are getting the equipment that our armed forces need. That was Defence Procurement Minister Stuart Andrew. Um, Christopher Lee, can you ever remember a time when there was certainty over the procurement of a, of a big project? No, that only happens if you go to war. Um, so you get a lot of spitfires. I tell you what, I remember HMS Invincible, aircraft carrier. The government didn't want to say that it was building an aircraft carrier. Because? Uh, because Parliament didn't approve of building an aircraft carrier because it means you would go, might go to war. So a minister got up and he started talking about this through-deck cruiser. And everybody was saying, oh, yes, the through-deck cruiser is a mighty fine ship, a wonderful concept, you know, through-deck cruiser, probably had two or three of them, don't you know. And then somebody got up in the in the House of Commons and said, this wouldn't happen to be the aircraft carrier. <laughs> <laughs> there was sort of big silence and uh, the House was adjourned or, or whatever. Mm. Um, but it's, it, it always happens. Let's end today uh, with a really nice story from Menorca. It's about a man who knows how to fly Spitfires and a bunch of guys who know a thing or two about aerobatics. Tell us more, Christopher. Okay, so there's a guy living in uh, Menorca, uh, Morris uh, uh, Winston, and he's 100. Uh, during the Second World War, he was flying, I think, hurricanes and might have flown a Spitfire as well. But it's his 100th birthday. Just so happens the Red Arrows are in Menorca are on some display. And uh, Wing Commander Andrew Keith, who's driving the, the arrow, said, we ought to go and see this guy. And so they took off and they did red, white and blue, 100th happy birthday right over his house. Bless him.
I mean, it's a lovely story. When you, all, all this sort of grim stuff that we've had to talk about this yeah. week to hear that. He was at a friend's house, wasn't he? He's so, he's so frail he can't actually walk anymore. No, his mind's nothing wrong with his mind, though. I mean, he, he was he was saying exactly what it was like, and he was also point talking about you know being in an aircraft like that. I mean, he he took out a couple of German bombers uh, and did other things like that. And he said, you lose a lot of friends, you know, and those friends stay with you. The images, the times that you had with them. Do you think sort of roll the clock forward another eighty odd years, we'll be having the same kind of stories about veterans that? Uh people who are recent veterans today, do you think well, there's going to be the same kind of fascination with war heroes? I don't think there's the same fascination because somehow it's it's fast. It's, it's if you like... Well, it's, life is so immediate these well, days, Well, yeah, mean? but it's also the, the, the whole idea of warfare now. It's uh, it's a different thing we're talking about. Now, Syria, we're talking about that seven, uh, you know, seven years of warfare. That's longer, longer than the Second World War. Um, but somehow, and what not, effect does that have? You're on not the... that close on it. You're not that close. I tell you, if you really want to start to wonder why and what we see now, which we didn't see before, and that's the horrors of war. Go to page 37 in the Times today and look at the horrors of what's going on in the Yemen. Uh, that's the horror that might live with us for much longer than the exploits of. And the, you said you wanted to end the program on a happy note. <laughs> Well, let's just think of Lieutenant uh, Morris Minster. I had this idea. The red arrows come over, um, thundering over the must... top of them. He says, I'm listening to the test match. Do you mind? <laughs> and while you're online, you can sign up for a podcast of the show. Just search for SITREP wherever you download your post podcast. From me, Kate Chabot, that's all we have time for this week. Speak to you again the same time next week. <laughs>